0: We're going to be in the book of Genesis today. Genesis chapter 30 is where we're going to begin, and I'm not going to be reading directly, but I'm going to be summarizing the life of Joseph as we talk about what biblical forgiveness is all about. I was thinking about, you know, who really stands out as a model of forgiveness, and the life of Joseph is pretty hard to beat. The definition of uh, forgiveness, if, if we look at the biblical definition, really means to cut off to cut off the effects of, to cancel a debt, to release someone from an obligation or a debt. And we see that in the parable of the unforgiving servant in Matthew 18 in the New Testament. Peter comes to Jesus and he says, Lord, how many times should I forgive my brother if he sins against me? And he thinks he's being pretty generous by saying up to seven times. And Jesus says, no, rather I tell you 70 times seven which in the day was really an idiom for eternally, infinitely. You know, there, there isn't a limit to forgiveness. And we know the story of the, the servant that owed his master a debt that he could never repay. And the text says in Matthew 18, verse 26, the man fell down before his master and begged him. And he said, please be patient with me and I will pay it all, which was not true. There was no way he could ever pay it. Verse 27, the master was filled with pity for him and released him and forgave the debt. That's what forgiveness means. It's a releasing. It's a cutting off the effects of something. It's really a, a financial term of balancing the books and, and cutting that off. The message of Scripture is that we forgive others who sin against us because God has forgiven us a debt that we could never repay, a debt that we could never make up. And that's the motivation. And I want to begin today, if you're taking notes on the outline of the bulletin, by talking about some things that forgiveness is not. And first, I would say that forgiveness is not communicating to the person who hurt us that what they did was okay. Forgiveness is not communicating that what was done was okay. Forgiveness is not the absence of accountability. You can forgive somebody for something they did, but that person may still need to be held accountable um, with, you know, authorities or the law or whatever. Forgiveness also does not mean the absence of boundaries. Forgiveness does not mean that you welcome someone back into your life. That you allow someone to continue to hurt you or to violate you or to abuse you. Forgiveness does not always mean forgetting. God has the power to forget, but as humans, we don't. And the point is not necessarily forgetting, because that's next to impossible, but it's releasing. Even though we don't forget the things that happened to us, we release people, and we release ourselves of that. And I would say that forgiveness is only possible when we realize that we have been forgiven. As I said, that we've been released of our debt with God it's only possible when we're not dependent upon what other people think of us as we form our identity but we're we're free from that we receive our identity from God and therefore we are released and free to forgive others I want to show you a preview of what you'll see this week in small groups on that very point as Jamie Winship uh kind of dials that point in let's watch for a minute
1: So, as we rediscover knowing God, as we think of knowing, rediscovered, and this idea of forgiveness, then you can see how these parts fit together because if I can access God through His Word, through His Spirit, and I can know Him, I can hear Him, I can commune with Him, then I can know my identity from Him. If I know my identity from the Lord, then I don't get my identity from other people around me. If I don't get my identity from people around me, it frees me to forgive people. If I get my identity from people, I can't forgive them because everything of who I am is tied up in what they think about me. And I I can't extract myself from it. And so if they are mad at me, if they say something insulting from me, and they hold the power of my identity over me, I can't cut that off from me. Do you see that? And so forgiveness is being, living in forgiveness, the oxygen we breathe in the kingdom is forgiveness. Living in forgiveness allows me to live in complete freedom. And the person who is forgiving another person is the one in charge. It, it, God forgives me. He's the one that I look to, and he, he has the right, I suppose, to, to judge me and curse me, and yet he forgives me. Therefore, I love him. I love him because he loved me first. And I love him because in while I was in opposition to him, opposing him, insulting him, he died for me. He was forgiving me the whole time. And so when God puts us in a position where we have the beauty, we we have this amazing capacity to release another person in forgiveness, that makes you in charge.
0: If we get our identity from other people, then we can't distance ourselves from the hurt. We can't separate because everything of who we are is wrapped up in what that person thinks of us and whether they approve of us and affirm us. But if we get our identity from God, then that frees us to be able to forgive others. Powerful point. Powerful point. If we know our identity from God, we're able to not hold on to things that maybe formerly we held on to. Often we have this mentality that you know, I don't want to let somebody off the hook. You know, I don't want, to, I don't want them, as I said earlier, to think that what they did was okay. And so we hold on to something. And oftentimes that person isn't even aware that they offended us or that we're holding on to something. And when we refuse to forgive, we're sending a message that what someone did to us made us who we are. We're kind of validating the power of what they did over us, that it really shaped us and that we've accepted that false identity that they've thrust upon us. And as Christians, if we get our identity from God, then we have to believe that his power to heal and restore is more powerful than Satan's power to use something over us for evil. And releasing is really twofold. It's not just releasing someone of what they did to us, but it's also releasing ourselves I read a story this week of a teacher who once told her students to bring a clear plastic bag and a sack of potatoes to school, and once they arrived, the students were instructed to call to mind every person that they had a grudge against. And for every person that they refused to forgive, they were to choose a potato and write the name of the person on it and put it in a plastic bag. Then they were told to carry this bag with them everywhere, putting it beside them in their bed at night on the car seat when driving, on their lap when riding, next to their desk during classes. Some bags became quite heavy. Lugging this around, paying attention to it all the time and remembering not to leave it in embarrassing places was a hassle. Over time, the potatoes became moldy and smelly and began to sprout eyes. The lesson? The lesson is that so often we think of forgiveness as solely a gift to the person who offended us rather than also a gift for ourselves. It's a two-way releasing, other people and us. Forgiveness really means that our kingdom identity defines us. It's our primary identification, that we get our identity from God and from his word. And it means that someone else's sinful action does not have the power to shape us but rather God does. I, I like that verse in Ephesians four, twenty-six and 27, when the Apostle Paul says, be angry but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down upon your anger and therefore give the devil an opportunity. The New International Version and the New Living Translation say, don't give the devil a foothold. And I think the same is true with forgiveness. When we harbor resentment, when we refuse to forgive, we give Satan an opportunity. We give him a foothold to to work in our lives and to cause destruction and dissension and division. As I said, I want to look at the the life of Joseph today. Joseph was one of those people that I've admired and looked up to since I was even a kid, because you really don't read much bad about him. Pretty stellar guy, even though a lot happened to him. He endured a lot. And he's born in Genesis thirty, verse twenty-four. That's where we first meet him in Scripture. And as I looked at the family that he grew up in, it has to be one of the most dysfunctional families that you can imagine. He's got four moms and one dad. Jacob works for Laban, his father-in-law, for seven years to win the hand of Rachel. And on their wedding night, Laban deceives him and tricks him and slips in Leah instead. And Jacob wakes up in the morning next to Leah and the text says, and there was Leah. (laughs) <laughs> and Jacob's thinking, what the heck? I worked for Rachel. And during this whole time, it's it's obvious that his affection and his love is for, for Rachel and not for Leah. And it's really a sad story because Leah begins bearing him children. And every time she bears another child, another son, which in that culture was highly esteemed, she thinks maybe now my husband will love me. But still it's clear that Jacob only has eyes and devotion and affection for Rachel. And so finally he works another 7 years for Rachel and she's unable to bear children and she's so jealous of her sister bearing that she gives her maid servant Bilha to to Jacob and says have kids with her. And then after a period of time Leah is not having kids and so she gives her maid servant to Jacob Zilpa and says have have kids with. So there's 11 sons that are born between these four women, all to Jacob, who at one point turns into Israel. And so Joseph grows up in this home, and 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 there's this rivalry, there's this obvious favoritism, affection for one and not the other. Uh, and at, at one point, Jacob says to his father-in-law, okay, I've got to leave now because um I, I gotta take care of my own family. And Laban doesn't want him to go because he's aware that God has clearly blessed him because of Joseph's, I mean, Jacob's presence in his life. And so Jacob works another six years for him and finally leaves. And in the, on the way to a place called Ephrath, uh, Rachel's in, in labor with Benjamin. Uh, she has Jacob, uh, Joseph as her son, and then she has Benjamin. And while she's in labor with Benjamin, she, she dies. Uh, in, on on the way, traveling. And so now there's there's three women, and all of this going on. And soon after this time, once they arrive at the new place, we read in the text how Reuben, the oldest brother, Joseph's older, oldest brother, takes his mom's servant and has relations with her. So there's that going on. And when, J, when Joseph's about 17, it, we read that he starts tending the sheep and the livestock, working for his brothers and for his dad. And it's clear that they hate him because their dad loves Joseph above all the other sons. He made this multicolored robe for him. And the text says that they hated Joseph because of their father's devotion and mistreatment of them. And and they couldn't even speak favorably, favorably to him. They weren't on good terms with him. And about this time... Jacob sends Joseph out into the fields uh, in a distant country where the brothers are tending the, the livestock to check up on them and see how they're doing. And he starts having these dreams. And he's dumb enough to tell his brother the dreams because in the dreams they're gathering bundles of wheat together and all of his brother's bundles are bowing down to his bundle. And they're furious at this and they say, Who are you? You know What, what delusion are you under that we're going to bow down and worship you? Then he has another dream where the sun and the moon and the stars are bowing down to him. And his father hears about that. And he gets the inference that now it's not just the brothers, but it's the mom and dad as well. And he says, are you kidding me? That not only your brothers are going to bow down and, and worship you, but your mother and I as well? Like, that just didn't make sense. And so all of this leads to animosity. And while Joseph is out checking on the brothers, they capture him, and they're going to kill him. They've just had enough of him. And so they find this big pit, and they throw him in there, and they're going to just leave him there to die. And as they're eating lunch, I mean, think about that. You've thrown your brother in the pit. He's crying out desperately for you to save him. He's terrorized. He's afraid, and they sit down for lunch. That shows you just how disassociated they were from him, how the lack of emotion that they had for him. And around this time a, a band of Ishmaelite traders is coming through a caravan and they decide one of the brothers decides why kill him when we can make a profit from him and so they sell him for like 20 shekels of silver and he's carted off soon after that these traders end up in Egypt and a guy by the name of Potiphar who's the captain of the bodyguard buys Joseph well God Continues to be with Joseph and allows Joseph to rise up within Potiphar's house and give him favor to the point that Potiphar puts him in charge of everything that he owns. All of his affairs, all of his servants, his finances, everything. And Joseph is successful. But Potiphar's wife starts taking a liking to Joseph. And daily, the text says daily, makes advances to him. And Joseph says, how could I... When my master has trusted me with all of this, do this. And it's interesting because he doesn't say, how could I betray my master? But instead he said, how could I sin against God? He realizes that God sovereignly is the one that has given him this favor and this success, not just his master. So day after day, she's trying to seduce him. And day after day, he's resisting her. And one day, as he's resisting her, she grabs his garment. And as he's running away, she pulls it off of him. And she holds on to it until her husband gets home. And she says, look at the, what this Hebrew has done. He's tried to make sport of me. He's tried to humiliate me in front of the servants and in front of my friends by taking advantage of me. And the master believes the lie, believes the story, and gets enraged and throws Joseph into jail. So it just seems like one up and down for Joseph. But while Joseph is in jail, again, God gives him favor and success. And the jailer there ends up turning over all of his affairs to, to Joseph. Joseph starts running the jail cell, the prisoners and all that goes on, and the jailer doesn't even have to concern himself. Well, around this time, the, the cupbearer to Pharaoh and the chief baker get into trouble, and Pharaoh throws them into jail. And while they're in there, they start having weird dreams. And somehow, it, word gets out that Joseph might be able to interpret these dreams. And Joseph throughout the whole narrative, the whole story is so humble. He's like, I don't have that kind of power, but God does. And I'll pray to him and he will reveal it to me, which is very admirable of him. And so Joseph basically reveals the dreams, the interpretation of the dreams to the cupbearer and the baker. And he says, you're both going to be restored back into service for Pharaoh, but the chief baker, you're going to end up being executed. You're going to die which isn't so, such a great thing to look forward to. And the cupbearer, you're going to go on to serve the, the Pharaoh. Sure enough, not too long after that, Pharaoh gets him out of jail, and exactly what Joseph predicted happens. They get restored back into service. The chief baker gets executed, and the cupbearer is restored back into his privileged position. And Joseph had told them, when you get out of here, please remember me. Tell Pharaoh that I was falsely accused that I'm innocent. Let him know how I interpreted your dreams, and and maybe he'll have favor on me. The text says that two long years go on, and, and they forget Joseph. The baker's dead, so he can't really say anything, but the cupbearer forgets to say something to Pharaoh until Pharaoh starts having his own dreams. He dreams about seven fat cows and seven skinny cows and has all of these weird dreams and visions and And finally, then, he can't figure it out. None of his magicians or uh, religious authorities can help him. And finally, the cupbearer says, you know, there was this guy back in jail who seems to have ability from God to interpret. And so Pharaoh brings Joseph out of jail. And again, Joseph said, that kind of power isn't in me. Only God can do that. But I will talk to him. And, And Joseph interprets the dreams. And he says, this is what your dreams mean. Egypt is going to go through a period of seven years of, of amazing abundance and just amazing crops and, and bountifulness, and then it's going to be followed by seven years of devastating famine. And so during the years of abundance, take 20% of all the yield of the crops and store them away for the time of famine. And Pharaoh is so impressed with his interpretation, his wisdom, that he promotes him to be second over all of Egypt. He says, I will only be ahead of you in in name, but you will rule over all of my affairs and you will be the most powerful person in Egypt. And the text says at this point, it's uh, Genesis chapter 41, that Joseph is 30 years of age. So as we're reading this story and enjoying God working and pulling out all of our points of application Joseph has lived this yo-yo life for 13 years. He's been thrown into a pit to die, only to be sold into slavery, only to advance in Potiphar's house, only to be falsely accused, then to be thrown in jail and to have success there, only to be forgotten by the people he helps. And finally, at age 30, he rises to a position of privilege, and he seems to be vindicated. But it's so easy to gloss over all the hardship in between. Joseph seems to be drawing his identity from God. How else is he able to stand through all of these tragedies? He seems to be seeing the blessings rather than the tragedies. And it's similar to us in times in our life when we can either focus on the blessings or we can focus on the trials on the good things that God's doing or on all the things that don't make sense. And we could either believe that God is sovereign and that he has a plan and a purpose for our lives, or we can see him as just this cruel being who just is toying with us like a cat playing with a ball of yarn, you know, like he has no compassion for us. As I look back on my own life, the hardest thing that I ever had to deal with was actually a ministry experience in January of 1991, I was 26 years old. Uh, My oldest daughter, Amanda, was about one year old. I had been graduated from Fuller Seminary with my Master of Divinity for about a year, and I'd been working at a church in Pasadena for about three and a half years, and it was a great church, but it was a small church, and they were struggling financially, and there came a point where they told the senior pastor and me that they were going to have to cut our salaries in half in order to make things work, and that wasn't going to work for either one of us. So we started looking, and and I received a call to a church in Walnut Creek, California, Christ Community Church, to be their youth pastor. And so for Denise and I and Amanda, it was like, it was like Abraham in Genesis 12, leaving everything that was familiar. We both grew up in Southern California. All of our friends were here. All of our family and extended family was here, and we didn't know anybody up in the Bay Area. But we went and, and followed that call, and for two years, things seemed to be really, really good at Christ Community Church. I was doing a great job with the youth, and the youth group was growing, and the church was loving us and supporting us. Until 1993, <clears throat> when the church decided to merge with a neighboring church in Alamo, Oak Creek Community Church, which, for those of you locals, was Roland Neenoggle's old church. And I didn't know that they had had previous discussions, but Roland had just left that church, and Dr. Mounts, who was the pastor that I served under for two years at Christ Community Church, he was a kind of a celebrity pastor who was a former president of Whitworth College, and he wrote a number of Bible commentaries, and it was great serving under him at Christ Community Church, but he retired and so now Christ Community Church and Oak Creek Church were going to come together and merge into one church. And the philosophy was we both own property and neither one of us has a senior pastor. So they decided to sell one of their properties, the Walnut Creek property, where Denise and I lived in a parsonage, an old farmhouse built in the early 1900s. That's another story. Kind of a just very cold experience during the winter. <laughs> and very hot without air conditioning in the summer. You get up to like 105. So we were kind of displaced from a home, and then they were going to build on the Alamo property and turn into Creekside Community Church. That was going to be the new church. And the combined congregation was about 400 people, and there would be two youth pastors because they were keeping everybody, two church secretaries, two children's directors, two ministers of music, and they called this pastor from a megachurch in Arizona, and He was given the authority to fire anybody he wanted and to start over with the staff. But he said, no, I like everybody. I'm going to keep everybody. And we kind of looked at each other like, this can't last. You know, there's two of everybody. And so it became a very, very competitive environment as each, you know, dual staff person was trying to outperform the other. And there was a lot of sabotage and tough stuff going on. Very tough environment. And finally... This pastor's pattern or or mode of relating to the staff, I remember many times he'd take me on errands with him. And while we were running errands, he would routinely gossip about other staff people and call into question their performance and ask me how I thought they were doing. And he'd plant rumors about them. And I watched seven other staff people end up leaving the church because they just couldn't take it anymore. And finally, after all this, I went to the pastor and I said, do you want me here or not? And and he said, no, I'm happy with you. You're doing a great job. And yet I knew at that very time, one of his former staff members from Arizona was building a church, I mean building a house for himself just a few miles from our church. And I knew that my salary was going to be paying his salary. And so I knew the pastor wasn't being honest with me. And, And I got worried because during this time, I was out five nights a week minimum, doing youth events, gone every weekend on trips. I mean, this pastor was literally trying to push me out and, and run me down, run me ragged. Denise was at home uh, with a one-year-old and a three-year-old and just, we were fighting more than we've ever fought in our marriage, things were bad. And I started looking at other churches and there was a church in Castro Valley, I remember, that was really interested in me. It was about 45 minutes from where we lived and I said, you can check any of my references. You can talk to anybody, but please do not talk to the senior pastor because he's, he's got a thing for the present staff. And, and they went directly to the senior pastor. Our senior pastor went directly to the elders and said, Dupar's not happy here. Look, he's looking. And senior pastor called me into his office, and the plan was that I was to stand in front of the church and say that leaving Creekside was my idea and my choice. And that was the hardest thing I ever had to do. I mean, my life had been disrupted. My marriage was worse than it was on the rocks. I had thought many, many times of leaving the ministry. And you guys know my story. I was called to the ministry at age 12. I I gave my life to full-time ministry. That was all I ever wanted to do. So it wasn't just leaving a job. It was leaving my calling. It was like losing my identity. My life was upside down. And I remember standing before the church and And spinning the idea, the script that I was told to say. And I remember even hugging the pastor afterwards. And one of the hardest things I ever had to do. And during this whole time, I kept thinking that, well, I'm called to serve the people. It doesn't matter what's happening to me. And things will get better. God did not have us leave family and friends and everything familiar to come to a place that we weren't even, you know. And and just to have it unravel. But it just kept unraveling and it never got better. And there are lessons that we learned and things that we got from that that I could share in another sermon. But there are times when things just don't make sense. And forgiveness is not easy. I want to draw some application from my own story and from the life of Joseph. And I want to suggest to you that it's in those times of testing, it's in those refiner's fire moments, that God is still at work even though we don't see it. And I believe he's doing two things, at least two things. One is that he's healing the painful memories of the past and allowing us to distance ourselves from that. And secondly, he's giving us blessing and fruitfulness, even in the midst of the tragedies. In Genesis 41, verse 50, it talks about the birth of Joseph's two sons. And it tells us that, that these uh, births took place two years before the famine came. And Joseph named the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me to forget my troubles. And he named the second Ephraim, for he said, God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. God has a way of allowing us to distance ourselves from the painful past. And God is sovereign and powerful enough to still give us fruitfulness and blessing, even in the midst of our affliction. And I really believe as Joseph held on to his identity from God, his identity which obviously was deeply rooted in God, that, that helped him to see God as sovereign and ultimately prevailing in, in control of life's circumstances because otherwise I think he would have given up. He was confident that no matter how bleak things became, that God still had a plan and a purpose. And at the end of Genesis, when he finally reveals himself to his brothers and their eyes are like Frisbees, like, oh, no, this guy now controls our destiny and we know everything bad we did to him. Joseph says this to them in Genesis 45, verse 5. He says, now do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, but God sent me before you to preserve life. God had a bigger plan. You know, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. A few verses later, he says, Now therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. Wow. And he made me a father to Pharaoh and lord over his household and ruler over all the land of Egypt. That's a conviction and trust in the sovereignty of God. That I'm not blaming you for, I'm believing that God had a bigger plan. You meant it for evil, God meant it for good. God sent me here to preserve life. God sent me here to actually help you and help dad and help the whole family. Joseph's name in Hebrew means Jehovah adds. Jehovah adds. And I believe the lesson of Joseph's life is that for every tragedy that he endured, God provided a compensating blessing. Every time Joseph was tested and went through the fire, God ended up giving him success and blessing to help balance things out. And when all is said and done, God shows that he's continuing to fulfill his purpose and plan. One of the last events that happens is Joseph goes and, to Pharaoh and says, I want to bring my family to Egypt because my dad is old, he's dying, and I haven't seen him in you know all of these years. And Pharaoh says, go, send for them, and I'll send supplies and chariots and make it happen. And so Joseph brings his brothers and their families and his dad back. And one of the most amazing things is that Jacob comes to Pharaoh... And, and he has the opportunity to lay his hands on Pharaoh and bless him. And we see that God's promise to Abraham, that he would bless Abraham and that he would bless those who blessed his offspring or descendants, is being fulfilled through Jacob and through Joseph. God is continuing to bless others through these patriarchs, through these servants, even other nations. And we see that God has been sovereignly at work the whole time. The question that we're left with today though, in my mind, as we look at my own story and Joseph's story, is how do we separate ourselves from the hurt? That sounds easy to say, it sounds nice to say, but how do we practically separate ourselves from the hurt? And I read a story this week that I thought would be helpful in that. The person who wrote this story said, a traveler and his guide were making their way through the jungles of Burma. And they came to a shallow but wide river and waded through it to the other side. When the traveler came out of the river, numerous leeches had attached to his torso and legs. And his first instinct was to rip them and pull them off. But the guide quickly stopped him, warning that pulling the leeches off would only leave tiny pieces of them under the skin, and eventually infection would set in. The best way to rid the body of the leeches, the guide advised, was to bathe in a warm balsam bath. For several minutes. This would soak the leeches and soon they would release their hold on the man's body. The author of this story goes on to say when we've been significantly injured by another person, we can't simply yank the injury from ourselves and expect that all bitterness and emotion will be gone because resentment often still hides just under the surface. The only way to become truly free of the offense. And to forgive others is to bathe in the soothing bath of God's forgiveness of us. When we finally fathom the extent of God's love in Jesus Christ, forgiveness of others is a natural outflow. So what does it mean to bathe in God's forgiveness? The three best ways that I found in my own life is to bathe in God's word, to continually read God's word. Not... Not buzzing through it to see how many chapters I can read or stay on a reading plan, but soaking it. Just letting it permeate my heart and my mind and drawing truth from it, drawing peace from it, drawing reminder of what I know to be true and being affirmed in that. Secondly, to bathe ourselves in Christian community. To surround ourselves with brothers and sisters in Christ who can remind us of the truth. Remind us of our identity. Remind us of what God's done in the past and of his faithfulness for the future. And thirdly, to bathe ourselves in prayer. To continually bring ourselves before God. And not just to have a gripe session where we just repeat to God everything that he already knows. You know, all the miseries of our life and what's going on with this or that. But to practice silent prayer, listening prayer. God, what is it that you want me to know about what's going on right now? What is it that you want me to... How do you want me to respond to that? What's the truth about this that I need to see from your perspective? And how do you want me to respond? We're going to participate in communion this morning. And we're going to do stations, which is a little bit different than traditional communion. Rather than being served where you are, we're going to invite you to come when you're ready. And I'm just going to ask you or challenge you to... Take this time, as much time as you need, the band's going to lead us in worship, and as you're ready, you can come to the table, take a piece of the bread in the basket, I'll hold the chalice, Ren will hold the chalice over here, and you dip it in that, and we'll pray over you, and pray God's blessing on you. But take this time before you come to search your heart as to whether there are people in your life that you need to finally release from the hurt that they've caused you, whether a sin in your own life that you need to release and hand over to the Lord and receive his forgiveness for, or whatever it is, this is our time to meet with our maker. Let's pray.